Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. In this session, Chris Valentin and Dr. Heath Wise will be sharing a message entitled, How To. Um, let's just pray for a minute and we can, we can interact some more before the morning's over. Father, thank you for what you're doing and you've called us to be revolutionaries, to revolutionize our culture, to actually bring a reformation to the church so that the world can be transformed. <clears throat> Give us wisdom and insight as we interact today and, and help us to leave um, not with more questions but with some answers to, um, to this generation, that we could be relevant to this generation and that we can lead it out of the cesspool of this uh, immoral culture that, we've, that we see all around us. Amen. Sorry, caught a healing. Um, a couple of things as we begin to uh, talk and interact <clears throat> that you were sharing just really were stimulating some things that are in my heart. You know, I, I think it's important for us to ask the, actually ask the question, why? And I think that sometimes when we don't understand the real problem, we create symptomatic cures. And today's cures become tomorrow's problems. And so I think one of the things that we need to do as a church is, is realize that <clears throat> our role is not to protect the rules. Our role is to protect relationships first. And, you know, we don't live in an old covenant where our goal is to protect the rules. I, I, I want to get out of um, the role of being the rent-a-cop who got hired to protect the Ark of the Covenant that Jesus left 2,000 years ago. So I want, to get out of the, I want to get out of the I'm the cosmic no guy and God is the cosmic killjoy and my job is to protect his, uh, God's desire to keep us from having a good time because that is somehow evil. And so I think it's really important that we ask ourselves you know, the deeper questions and instead of looking at someone's behavior, it seems to me like that much of uh, religious culture tries to do what Jesus spoke against in that the Pharisees tried to create righteousness externally. And Jesus said, you, you, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside there's a problem. And I think that, in, in my opinion, and I, <clears throat> I love the church, you know, I, I think I've been to church every Sunday morning for the last um, 35 years and probably have missed maybe 10 Sundays in my life, because I mean that's how much I value, you know, the the actual assembly of the church, and we'll go on vacation and and we'll go to church, you know. Um, I, I love the church, not just Bethel. I just I just love the church. But <clears throat> as an insider, I think it's pretty easy to um, look around and understand why things aren't really changing. This might be a shocking uh, example to you, but I I just finished that that book. Um, Heavy Rain, which is actually a book about cultural transformation. So I did a bunch of research, and I found out that the, that the cities that have the highest Christian church-going population in America have the worst social statistics. Uh, let me just put it like, what, make sure that what you heard me say, I really did say. In other words, the more people that go to a Christian church, percentage-wise, in a city, the worse off the social statistics are with the exception of five cities in America. What does that tell you? That gathering people does not transform cities. And <clears throat> I, I have some ideas, in fact, that's basically what my book's about. I have some ideas why gathering people doesn't transform cities. One of the reasons is, is that we're not actually talking about the relevant issues of our community. And somebody, you know, when we start thinking about immorality, it's like, it's real easy to say, well, you know, um, well, pornography is taking over our, our, our cities and, you know, Hollywood deserves to be punished for its, uh, you know, propagation of pornography and, you know, homosexuality is, and, and not, I, I think it's like, it's so typical of most Christians to, <clears throat> um, per, uh, to perpetuate the idea that God is angry about a behavior instead of greed over a heart. And I think it's important that we, as, uh, as parents and as leaders, 
ask ourselves the deeper questions. Like why, for instance, abortion is a great example. Why does somebody, you know, if you take any kind of an animal, like a squirrel that's passive, you know, a squirrel will always run away from you. Unless, you know, you reach your hand into a, a log. We used to live in the woods, and she has babies. And the maternal instinct is so strong that it will actually override the squirrel's natural instinct to run away, and it will attack you. So why is it... <clears throat> so what I'm getting at is, in our country, in America, unlike China, we don't require women to have an abortion. We allow them to have an abortion. We don't require them to have an abortion. So you have to, you have to ask the deeper questions like, what, what is actually driving a person who would normally protect their young to actually be the one destroying their young. And, and, and what I'm getting at is that there are ecosystems that are created, and if you don't understand the ecosystem, like what is actually, you know, what is actually creating this, this cycle, then you create symptomatic cures so that today's cures become tomorrow's problems. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Much of the Christian world has the idea that the way you stop abortion is to stand up and make judgments about the people who have them. Well, I, I think if you, and, and some, and the, you know, the extreme people are saying stuff like, well, God's going to judge you, God's angry with you, God's going to judge whoever. Let's, I don't know what your nation, but in America, God's going to judge America because, because we're killing babies. And, and it never occurs to us, like after 9-11 uh, was a great example, you could, got, you could get on the internet, I think most of those prophecies are gone now, but you could get on the internet and find prophecies that said, the, and the fact on 9-12, which was really heartless, that the reason why 9-11 you know, happened was because we were killing babies and the judgment of God is on America. And I'm like, okay now, if you just think through what you just said, if you, just, if you just back up for a minute and think about what you just said. You just said that God is so angry about us taking the lives of our young that he's killing, he just killed 3,000 people to make his point. And, and we, what we're doing is we're propagating, like we don't realize it, but we're perpetuating the very thing that we're trying to stop. And, and so it's important for us to back up and say, like, what is really wrong? Like, when we're talking about any, any kind of thing, you know, we're, we're going to talk about morality today, but when we're talking about abortion, we have to back up and say, what is really wrong? The, obviously, we need our laws changed. That's, I, I'm, I'm there. But the law never, is never going to change the heart. That, Jesus taught us that. The law is never going to change someone's heart. And so what needs to happen for the maternal instinct? See, the real problem with abortion is women have lost, not women, our culture has lost the maternal instinct. And so you're not going to, the maternal instinct is not going to return because you punish people for not having it. It's like telling a depressed people, a person, you need to be happy. It's like, oh, well, I know that, I'm the depressed person. <laughs> It, it, somehow we think that telling people what, uh, what the you know telling people where, the way it should be is somehow solving it. It's like it's like when you when someone climbs up a ladder and you go, "Don't fall." Well, that's pretty stupid. I did not climb up this ladder to think. I think I'll fall. And nobody, nobody, you know, nobody, nobody thinks they're going to get in an accident. And so the the question is is like. What is, what is perpetuating culture? Um, um, I had an experience. It's, yeah, it's in one of my books. I can't remember which. It might be in the purity book. <coughs> I think it is. But I had um, an experience many years ago. I, I have two daughters. So Jamie, who's my oldest daughter, and Shannon. They're both married now. They're both senior pastors in churches but, um, with their husbands. But when they were growing up, from probably the time that they were... Um, like 15 and 16, and, and all the way into their um, early uh, 20s, Shannon, for some reason, got all the dates. I mean, guys, like, you know, we would have these alternatives, like Christian alternatives, so if there was a, uh, if there was a dance, we had a Christian alternative. That was always a lot more fun than a dance, you know? And Shannon would get five guys that would call her that week and say, Can you, we want, you want to go to the alternative? And, 
And Jamie would get nobody. I mean, not a single person called her. And I mean, this didn't go on. This wasn't like an event. This went on for like three years. And my daughter, Jamie, <coughs> who was really beautiful, they were both really beautiful. She'd get, she'd take the phone calls, you know. Call, the phone would ring, and of course she'd be excited to answer the phone like, maybe I'm going to get the call. And uh, Hi, is Shannon there? And You know, that just went on month after month, year after year, and Shannon would, the guy would come to the house to pick her up, and Jamie would run upstairs crying, and I would run up there, and she'd be, you know, have her head buried in her pillow, and I'd lay next to her and put my arms around her, and she'd be, you know, 15, 16 years old, and she'd be saying to me, Daddy, am I ugly? Is there something wrong with me? Well, no, honey, you're beautiful. And we would lay there, and I, and I, I, I'd say, you know what? Put your best stuff on. We're going on a date. I took that girl on more dates than I took my wife on. <clears throat> I mean, I just would plan, like, there's an event coming up. She's not going to get invited. You know, secretly, I've twice paid guys to take her out. Secretly. Guys in our youth group. If you will take my daughter out, I will pay for the night. And, I mean, that's how, that's how tough it was. And I can remember just holding her in my arms with tears running down my chest as she just bawled her eyes out. Daddy, what is wrong with me? Why doesn't anyone ever ask me out? You know, what is, what, what Daddy, am I ugly? Daddy, not, am I fat? Daddy, what, what, why doesn't anyone ever like me? And, I mean, I spent a lot of years weeping that girl into a new identity. And I, I came out of that, and I, and I had this thought, like, what would have happened if Jamie wouldn't have had a dad who laid next to her in her bed and put his arms around her and wept her into a new way of thinking and took her out on dates and loved her during those, I'll call them the ugly duckling years, but she never really, she wasn't ugly. I mean, I can show you pictures. She was scary. Jimmy was scary. And so, you know, I, and I would say to her, you are beautiful. You are amazing. And I, I don't just mean when she's crying. I mean, I made an extra effort for both of my girls. When they, when they would get dressed in the morning or get ready for school, I'd kiss them. I'd say, you are beautiful. You are, tor you are tormenting the men in your school. <laughs> and I remember, this is uh, a few years ago. I came into the sanctuary early, and there was about, I think there were about five or six, maybe, maybe up to eight, school ministry uh, students that were standing in the back, just kind of before service, and just kind of hanging out, and they were talking in this group, all, all girls. And I, I, um, as I walked past them, I intended to pass them, and I looked over at them, and they kind of, hi, Pastor Chris, and I said, how are you doing? And my, this is the thought I had, man, those girls are so beautiful. Those girls are so beautiful. So I thought, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, you girls are so beautiful. And when I, I walked over, so they were maybe from here to the wall, as I started to walk over there, I had this thought, if you tell them they're beautiful, the people around you will think that you're sexualizing those girls. <coughs> and so, so there I, I was, I got about here, and I had this intense thought, if you tell those girls they're beautiful, the people all around you will think that you are sexualizing those girls. And so, I, and this all happened about this fast. You know how quick thoughts happen. So I'm, I'm slowing it down to kind of give you my thought process. And I kind of stopped and I, I kind of thought, well, yeah, that's true, you know. I, I don't want to ever have a reputation while well, that guy touched me inappropriately. That guy hugged me. I wonder what his intentions were. I mean, I, you know, I have never, ever in my whole life, I was youth pastor for 15 years, ever been accused of inappropriately, you know, inappropriate behavior with the opposite sex ever. So, so I, I'm like, oh, that would, you know, that would be terrible. And I'm having these thoughts like, that would, wouldn't it be terrible to be accused of that in leading a movement and being accused of being inappropriate with women? And then this, then suddenly, I had this vision. Now, I don't mean a vision, I just mean a vision in my mind. And I was taken back to those days when I would lay with my daughter and say, you are so beautiful. 
you are amazing. And I remember, and I felt like the Lord said, who will father this generation? Who will father this generation? And I began to see, and this all happened like this quick, but I began to see Jamie without a father. What would it have been like if she didn't have a dad who loved her? I don't just mean loved her, please. I mean showed her affection, holy affection. What would it have been like if she wouldn't have had a father who showed her holy affection? Where would she have been looking for love? And I began to see her, I began to see the whole, that whole thing replay without a father and, and, and see my daughter competing with her sister without any holy affection at home and where that could have led. And, I, and so here I am, I'm just kind of stalled here, this kind of, I know this is probably only lasting about this long and it feels like an eternity, you know what I'm saying? And I, and, I, and, I, and I felt like the Lord said, I am restoring a culture of holy affection. I am calling the fathers back. I'm calling fathers back to show holy affection. And I went, I, so I went over to those girls and I, and I, and I said to myself, I, I'm kind of this way inside to tell you the truth. I, am, I hope that I'm not a rebel because that would be mean rebellious, but I am kind of like, uh, I'm definitely like run against the wind kind of person, and I typically do not care what people think, unless it makes, unless there's some purpose in it. And I said to myself, I will not let an immoral culture tell me how to behave. And, and so I walked over to those, I think, seven or eight girls, and I said, hey, when I was passing you girls, I just had this thought, and I thought I, I thought I needed to tell you, you girls, and I look each one of them in the eye, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. And if I was your daddy, I'd be so proud of you. And I just went around and I, I said, I just want to give each one of you a hug. And I went around and hugged each one of them. And, and when I left, I looked back and, and, and three or four of them had tears coming down their eyes. And I felt like God said, do not ever let the world tell you how to behave. And I think that, I think that our culture, I mean, what happens in, in our culture is, you know, we have an immoral culture. We know that. Like, and we're not the first generation. Like, we've got to get out of, like, oh, things are getting worse and worse. I mean, you know, we had, you know, in the Old Testament, we had a, a, we had a city named after immorality that today we get our, our word Sodomite. You know, it's, Sodom was, a, I mean, was so evil that God actually named the city after it. So, I mean, we have to stop pretending like, wow, this is a new thing. It's not a new thing. This, has been, this, is, this is as old as Adam and Eve. Like, the, the things that we're facing with sexual immorality are as old as Adam and Eve. The Old Testament is full of godly people who actually broke the boundaries of their sexual uh, restraints and crossed over the line and did all kinds of crazy stuff from King David to, to you know, Jacob. I mean, people just did crazy stuff. And they loved God. I just want to say that again. People broke sexual barriers who loved God. And so, you know, to pretend like, I, 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 really, I really resist this whole idea. It's like, well, we're in a sexually charged culture. Well, what culture wasn't? Which culture wasn't sexually charged? Can we stop pretending like, oh, this has never happened before. We have this. It's like, yes, it has. Yes, it has. And so, you know, um, the, the disciples were actually stunned when Jesus told them that they couldn't get a divorce. I mean, Peter's comment is, who can receive this? So we, they didn't live together. They would marry someone, you know, have a few kids with them and divorce them and move on. And a, a woman was considered a possession, a dog, somebody to have kids with. So when Jesus said, Listen, you know, Moses gave you the certificate of divorce, but I say to you, and he, and he began to talk about covenant love, that you can only have one woman. The disciples' response was, well, who could receive this? And Jesus said these, these words, with, with man, with God, all things are possible. And that, what he meant was, you can actually stay with one person forever. All things are possible was written inside of the context where Jesus said, you can only have one woman. So immorality has been around forever. The uh, temple prostitutes and all stuff, stuff that we, you know, that we don't have in an Amer American culture where you, know, you go to church to have sex with the woman and she's, you, you, you know, that's what you pay your tithe for. You, they provide women for you. 
You know, it's like, there, it just, just all I'm trying to say is, can we stop pretending that this is like some, some kind of epic thing that's happened in our generation? It's like, no, it isn't. This has been going on for generations. There's nothing new with sin. And so, and I think it's important that, you know, and I want to kind of just show you an ecosystem. So we have an immoral culture, sexually charged culture, and, and maybe in this sense that we have, you know, the visuals of the internet and, and, you know, the printing press. So we have magazines and all that sort of thing. So maybe it gets perpetuated in a different way. Maybe it's easier to get to, especially for our young people, I would say. And, and so, we, so we know that's sexually charged. And so we, and we know that, that, you know, that people are thinking like that. So we withdraw affection because we don't want to be seen as, as, a, as a person who is sexualizing, you know, daughters or, or, or with the girls, you know, guys. So, so we withdraw affection. And what happens? We create a, a, a more of a vacuum for affection. And what we're doing, we don't realize it, but we're actually creating the very culture that is, is perpetuating finding love in the wrong places. So we don't touch anybody, we don't hug anybody, we don't give anybody a holy kiss, which are all in the Bible, by the way. Greet one another with a holy kiss is mentioned four times in the New Testament by three authors. But we, we, don't, we can't do that because if we do that, the whole, everybody in our, in our congregation is like, you know, what are you, what, what's your motive? And so the, the, the people that are, the, you know, the 10% or 20% of our church that are sexualizing people are driving our culture. They are dictating the behavior of our culture. So the dysfunctional people are telling the functional people how to behave. And something has to change because we, we, there is no affection. So people come to church, and I said, you know, people that come to church, I mean, the more people you draw to church, the worse your social statistics are. But what would happen if church became a place, first of all, it became a place for people to become accountable for their sexual misbehavior so that you actually did confront people. Because, you know, what happens when you teach this is that you have, you te- if you teach it in a crowd to the congregation, you have predators out there. And they're like, this is what they're looking for. They want to come to a church where it's okay to perpetuate their dysfunction. So, and we all know that. So we're like, you know, we're... As leaders, we're stuck in this crazy, um, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of a thing because the people who we want to hear, hey, you know, these gals need a hug. These guys need to be, they, they need affection. And, and the people we want to hear that, the healthy people that we want to go, break out of your box and, and love on somebody. The people we want to hear that, don't, don't, they're all afraid that, that their integrity is at stake. And the people we don't want to hear it, who are sexually dysfunctional, those people tend to hear it and feel like they've got permission. You understand what I'm saying. So, you know, the first thing I want to say is to all the leaders in this room is we have to create a culture of healthy affection. Sorry. We have to create a culture of healthy affection. I mean, people, people long to be touched. I'm not just talking about girls. I'm talking about Men too, they long to be touched appropriately. They long to be touched. They long for somebody to say, you're amazing. You're beautiful. I love your hair. You know, I have a staff of 400 people on our staff. Probably, mm, I don't know, I haven't counted, but probably 250 of them are women. And I'll walk through the, uh, through the um, office. <coughs> Got a lot of uh, girls, ladies, Young, young ladies, I'll walk through the office and I'll be like, ah, oh, you cut your hair, you look so pretty. And I'm like, I will not let, you know, I have never sexualized a woman in my mind, except for in a dream, which I don't feel like I can control, I feel like that was an attack. But I've never had sex with anyone except for my wife since I've been married, in my mind, with the exception of a dream. So, you know what, I, I, I have, I, I'm, I am sexually integrous. I'm a one-woman man. Not because I couldn't sexualize someone else, but because I've worked really hard not to. I'm going to be really clear. Like, I totally could sexualize somebody else. Totally. It's, it, it, it's, my sex drive doesn't, doesn't know a person. My sex drive could have many women. So I have to tell my sex drive how to behave. But I work at it. I mean, I work at it. 
And I, I want to say this. You know, there's a difference between temptation and sin. Yeah. I was talking to uh, a leader not long ago, and, and they said to me, I sin every day. I'm like, that was shocking. One of our, one of our really world-class leaders. I, sh- I sin every day. And I'm like, listen, our message is you're not a sinner once you receive Jesus. So that's a weird, that's a strange statement. Please tell me about that. And they began to talk to me about what they meant. And they, they began to talk to me about, about temptation. I said, wait a second. Jesus was tempted in every way except without sin. See, if I was hungry and you left me in a room with sushi, it wouldn't be a temptation. I hate sushi. <laughs> but if you left me in a room with a nice hot lobster tail and I was hungry, I would be tempted to eat it because I love lobster. My point is, is that you have to have a natural desire for the thing, for anything, to tempt you. So the fact that I have a desire for it is not sin. It's what I do with the desire. So, you know, in this room, there's a bunch of guys in this room. If a beautiful naked woman ran past us in this room, every man, every normal man in this room would be stimulated sexually. That's not sin. It's when I cross over in my mind and say, I would like to have sex with her. Now I've sinned. Temptation isn't sin until I make agreement with it. So I'm not saying I've never had a sexual thought about a woman. I'm saying I've never agreed with it. I've never made an agreement with it. I've never said, I, oh, I received that for myself. She should be mine. I, I, I'm saying I've had lots of sexual thoughts. I don't agree with them. I'm like, that's not who I am. I've made a covenant with one. I, I have a woman to have sex with. I, I will not make a covenant with another woman. Are, are you following me? And I, I have worked really hard. If I have an affection for a certain woman, an attraction, let me say it differently. When I have an unhealthy attraction for a woman, which has had, happened many times in my life, I won't have a relationship with her. And what I find is four or five months down the road, that lifts. And I can, and I can have a relationship with her. But if I feel attracted to a person, to a woman, I won't have a relationship with her. I won't build a relationship with her. Not for her sake, for my sake. Like, I don't trust me. Are you with me? And those, and those are some of the things I try to do. Like, I, so I, I'm not going to hug a girl that I, am, that I am attracted to. I'm not going to do that. When I say attracted, I say, well, that girl's beautiful. That's different than I want her. If I feel that I want her thing for anyone... I don't have a relationship with them. I don't hug them. I stay away from them. And I find that if I, will, if I will be obedient to that thing inside of me, if I will pay attention to that thing inside of me, God will take it away. And I, I can tell you, it happens over and over. Some girl come to our school ministry, she's really attractive, and I'm like, I have an unhealthy draw to that woman. I can feel it. It's not her fault, it's mine. I take full responsibility for it. Whether she's got problems or not, the issue's mine. I can only manage me. And I'll, and I'll say to myself, make a note, do not have a relationship with that girl. So I'll, I'll make sure the rest of the team you know, connects with her and gives her a hug, whatever. I just can't. I just won't. And I'll notice, like, halfway through school, that's totally changed. I see her, she's, she's a beautiful girl, but that thing's not there. I'll go give her a hug, kiss her on the forehead, whatever, but it it's not, it's, I'm not sexualizing her. I, I, have, I have managed this appetite. Are, are you following what I'm saying? And, and somehow we have to figure out a way. <clears throat> Man, this is the challenge we have. We have to figure out a way to have, to have holy affection return to everything we're doing. From our homes, it has to begin in our homes. From our homes to the things that we lead without letting predators take advantage of it. This is where discernment is huge in our lives as leaders. We have, we have to be, I listen a lot to my wife. Like my wife will, she has really good, like with men or with, or with women, especially with women, she'll be like, that person does not have a healthy affection for you. I, I remember uh, years ago, I had this gal who worked for me. Um, I'll call her Jane. Her name wasn't Jane. And uh, Jane worked for me for, her husband worked for me for, seven years. He worked for me in three different shops. She worked for me as a, as a uh, uh, parts driver, delivering parts. And, 
Uh, I mean, I just knew her forever. I knew her family forever. She came from a very broken family. I led her to Christ, her husband to Christ, came to our church for years. She was very prophetic. <coughs> and, um, and then for about a year, her and I um, drove to Reading together. I had a parts house in Reading and one in Weirville. We lived in Weirville, which is about an hour's drive. So um, three times a week, I would go to Reading. Well, she drove from Reading to Weirville every day. She was our driver who drove back and forth. So I would catch a ride with her. She'd drive down, pick up parts. And, well, I kind of worked at the store down here, checked on it and stuff for four or five hours. And then I'd gra- you know, jump in the truck and ride home with her. And Well, we did that for a year. And so, you know, we talked, and she was really broken and had a father who molested her and two brothers who molested her. And it's, you know, you get behind the scenes and things start to make a lot of sense, right? And you make lots of judgments about people's immorality, and then you get behind the scenes and it's like, wow, you know what? I wonder how I would have behaved if that was propagated on me as a child. So, so you know, I got to learn a lot about her brokenness, and of course, broken people create broken people, and her marriage was broken, and... We're riding back and forth for hours, for a year, and I'm talking to her about everything from, you know, how, how she had uh, two, three teenage kids and they were in my youth group. And so we talk, you know, we just talk about how to raise kids and, you know, and how to respond. She had a real problem with anger. We just worked through it. And, and we also talked about her sex life with her husband as, as we, you know, I mean, I know this girl for a long time. So she would talk about, you know, their sexuality and I would just give her like, talk to her about, you know, how a man thinks and what her husband's probably trying to communicate to her and just, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, one day I get home. This is like a year into this. I get home, and, um, and, and I should say it's like, Melody is not attractive. She's not attractive. She, she's not anybody I would ever, like, if I was going to fall, it wouldn't be with Melody. She smokes. She's, she smells like cigarettes all the time. I mean, I love her, but she's like a daughter with absolutely no, I have no attraction to her whatsoever. So I get home one night, and it's probably 7 o'clock at night, my phone rings, and it's Jane. And I pick up the phone, I'm like, hi, how you doing? And she's, yeah, this is Jane. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? And she's kind of crying on the phone. <coughs> and um, she said, you know, I think we have to stop lying to each other, and I know you want me. I'm like, What? I know you want me, and I want you too, and, you know, you're singing songs to me. Well, sometimes I sing. I sing all the time, you know, all oldies, and I'm singing in the truck sometimes when we're not doing anything. She thinks I'm singing love songs to her. And so she goes through this whole thing. She's going on for about three or four minutes. Finally, I go, Kathy, (laughs) Kathy. (laughs) Kathy comes, I go, here, take this phone. And so Kathy talks to her, and we go through this whole drama, and she tells Kathy she's going to kill herself. She can't have me, and I'm like, well, that would be one way to solve the issue. <sighs> this goes on for a long time, and <laughs> that was a joke, obviously. <laughs> this, this went on for like, this, that, that was the beginning of it, but it, it lasted for like two years. She's in my prophetic group. I have a group of prophetic people that I'm, you know, I'm working with. So once a week, she's in my prophetic group on Fridays. And just to give you another incident, we're in a prophetic group, and there's about 40 of us. And, and Danny is our pastor at the time. And Danny, you know, obviously, I'm like totally connected to Danny. I call Danny. I call Bill. I go, hey, this is what's happening. I want you to know. I don't know what kind of rumors are going out there, but this is what happened. Here's my wife. Here, she can tell you the story. So, so we're in prophetic group, and, and, the, and one of the prophetic people go, hey, let's put you in the middle and prophesy over you. I'm like, all right. So I get in the middle, and I'm a little anxious because Jane is there. I never know what Jane's going to do, because this is like, we're like a year and a half into this. So I, I'm in the middle, and Jane starts. Um, I see you and I together. You know, God is, is putting us together. And, uh, you know, there's this, there's this sexual connection between us. This is with my 40 people. She's telling people prophetically there's a sexual connection between us. And I start yelling, get Danny, where's Danny? I'm yelling in the group, get Danny, where's Danny? So someone runs out, grabs Danny from his office, drags him in there while she's still doing her thing. He grabs her, takes her out. Uh, This is like, oh my God. (laughs) So, you know, what I'm getting saying by that is you never know how someone else is receiving you. You know, I, I totally, I totally, I was totally innocent. 
But this girl, you know, Proverbs says, um, the world can, uh, cannot stand up under an a unloved woman when she marries. Because why? Because she's like, Mary, oh, you know, oh, you know, it's like an unloved woman. Somebody who's never, who's never had affection before will suck the life out of somebody. And I watch students like that, you know, I come into the, the room and, I, you know, I've done this for a long time now. And I've got lots of students. So I can see the unloved woman. I can see that when I give her a little attention, she becomes like a puppy dog and she's following me around because no one's ever told her she's beautiful. No one's ever told her she's loved. So it's difficult because I've got to somehow, if that doesn't get fulfilled in her, she's going to go find it someplace else because nobody can live without love. And so I, I would say, uh, this is my take. I think that our immoral culture is actually a love-starved culture. I honestly believe that the real struggle in our culture is not sex. I really don't think it is. And I think that we're after the wrong root cause. I think we're after the wrong root. I think we're trying to solve, I think we're trying to solve a symptom with, with symptomatic cures. And that's not the problem. I think the problem is actually rooted in our culture has become completely sterile. There's no affection. There's no camaraderie. You know, I, I had a youth group I shared last night. I had a youth group for, for five years. It was all probation kids. You know what I learned? I learned I, those kids all lived down the street. So I was in most every one of their houses over five years. And not one of those kids, not a single one. Now, I understand this is not a study in, you know, I mean, I had... 110 kids that rotated. So maybe I, I, maybe I had 300 kids over five years. So I understand that this is not the final word on broken kids. But I can tell you, not one of my kids ever had their biological father in the home. Not one. Not a single one. And it was just something about, and you know what I did in that place? You know, I couldn't do religious stuff in there. Like, I could tell Bible stories, but I had to be careful how I did it. You know, so I would, I could tell them a story and say, hey, you know, the ancient book says, <laughs> there's ancient writings that say, and I got really good at it, you know, I got practice at it. But you know, the biggest thing that changed those kids, I would take those girls and I would hug them. I'd kiss them on the forehead. I'd grab those guys. And, uh, you know, guys need affection too. And I would hug those guys and, and I, 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 I would talk to them like, I would talk to them like they were completely healthy. And I'd tell them what I see in them. I'd be like, you know what? You're amazing. Like, there's a, you know, I know that you, you can't read or write because they would tell me, but there's a brilliant mind in you. You know, there's a mental block. We're just going to, we're just going to, we're just going to right now, we're just going to break that thing off you. And I just break that mental block off you. And I would just do that with my kids. And you know what? They just, they just, I mean, these are all, you know, these are probation kids. These kids are all on probation. They all broke the law. And they were just, they just, it didn't take about two months, and they were like, they went from like, oh, you know, here's the preacher, to like, that's our dad. That's our dad. I, I got to tell you a story. One night, these, these, uh, these uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came in to the gym, right? This is an old, beat-up gym that we have swept out. I mean, it, when it rains, it leaks. The kids don't care. They're, I mean, we're actually sweeping the gym out while it's raining so we can continue to play ball. I mean, that's how bad the gym was. They haven't used the gym in 25 years. Nobody's ever done anything with these kids. So I've got about 110 to 150 kids a night by the second year, two times a week, you know? And I, and I got the hoodlums. So the, the, the sheriff who I prophesied into office is my best friend. And, they, and the sheriff's department waits at my gym to arrest all the kids they've been looking for. They're wrecking my youth group. So I finally sat down with the sheriff and said, Listen, can we make some kind of deal? Like, I'm helping these kids. You're arresting them. How about this? If you keep arresting these kids on, on, on youth group night, they're not going to come. And I'm not going to have a chance to speak into them. How about this becomes a no-arrest zone? And so we made a deal after six months that that gym became a no-arrest zone. And the kids knew it. So I had all the hoods. And the goal, and if you had a gun or a knife, you had to leave it outside. So they ditched the guns and the knives and the drugs outside. No drug exchanges inside the walls. That was the goal. That was, and the kids policed it. So new kids would come, and they'd try to do a drug deal. And my kids would go, we don't do that in here. My kids would go, hey, we effing don't do that here, dude. <laughs> Guy would walk in with a gun, and they're like, hey, no, dude. We effing hide the guns out in the thing. 
you know, it was, that never changed much. <laughs> so I say crap from the pulpit, and they're like, you're cussing. It's like, you have no idea what I grew up with. <laughs> I was the only guy who didn't cuss, you know? So anyway, I got to tell you this, the Jehovah's Witnesses came in one night, you know, and they're, and they're you know, you, you, know, they, you know, you know they're Jehovah's Witnesses as soon as they walk in. And I, I, God bless the Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I'm not mad at them, but I'm just telling you a story. So they come in and they're like, who's in charge here? You know, there's all this activity, kids running all over the place. And they're like, who's in charge here? And I'm like, I, well, I guess it depends on what you want. I guess that would be me. And, the, and they start, there's like six of them. And they're like, we are getting you closed down, separation of church and state, because the county owned the building, I was getting it for free, and we found out, we did research, we found out you're getting the building for free, and they start like, we are getting you closed down, by next week you'll be closed down, well, what they didn't realize is that my kids, they didn't put up with any crap, and pretty soon, within about a minute and a half, they are surrounded with all these hoodlums, <laughs> and my kids start doing what they're really been trained in. I mean, these are some bad kids. And then one kid starts like, you effing get out of our effing gym or we're going to effing kick your effing... <laughs> and pretty soon I got 50 kids screaming at him and I'm like, I just walk away. I'm like, you take care of him. They never came back. The Mormons walked in about a year later. They looked around... Stayed for about 10 minutes. You know, they rode their bikes up with their shirts and all that. Looked around at my kids and thought, mm, no, nah, this isn't a, this is not a mission field. <laughs> this is some kind of prison organization. <laughs> but I learned that those kids were starving for love. Like, they were starving for love. And they would like, F you, and get really mad at me and scream and yell at me. And I would kick him out of the gym because that was the, you know, that was the punishment. Like, you're, okay, you are restricted for, you can't come next Tuesday. You're restricted. You can't even tell me what to do. I just did. And if you come back in, I'll throw your butt out. So they get restricted. Then pretty soon they start to learn, like, that doesn't work. I'm like, you want to talk to me? Talk to me, but do not scream at me. And so we learn and, and we, we, we create it. It sounds crazy, but in the midst of all that chaos, we created a culture of affection. I just loved on them. I kissed them. And some of them, they're like, they don't know what to do, you know. When someone's trying to, like, hug you, they've never been hugged before by a father. They're like, they like hugging rocks. And I just hugged those rocks for five years. <laughs> just loving on them and, like, talking to them. And, and I would talk about sex about at least once a month. I would talk about sex and, and we'd interact and they'd have questions and I would just sit with them sometimes. Instead of teaching, I would say, anybody have questions about sex? Let's talk about sex. Oh, dude, you don't have to know anything. I'm like, okay, well, why don't you try me? You know, I've kind of been around a while. I've had sex a few times. I'm married, so maybe I could help you, you know? And they would start to interact, and pretty soon they were like, talk to me like, hey, I had sex with my girlfriend. I, you know, how do I tell if she's pregnant, you know? Da-da-da. And, and uh, how do I tell if I got some kind of STDs? Or, and I'll just interact with them, and they just... I'm not kidding you. They just, they just love me, and I love them, and they'd end up in my house. And My oldest son, uh, his name's Eddie, he wasn't on probation, but he was friends with all those kids because his mother had five children. Uh, to, she had one husband and five kids with five different men, so he was really broken. Anyway, I adopted him out of that group, and he became, he's my oldest son. His name's Eddie. We just love Eddie. He's, 30, he's 37 now. So... Um, I just want to say that we have to figure out some way to create a culture where people feel, actually feel like, not I love you, but they feel love. They feel love. I realize that there's a great risk in it. I'm not telling you, like, let's not be stupid, okay? Let's realize how we got to this sterile atmosphere. I realize there are real reasons why we got to this sterile atmosphere. I realize that. All I'm saying is, we have to figure out a way to reverse that and, and watch people that have problems. I will, in our culture, say to some of our young leaders, hey, dude, don't know what you're doing there. Uh, let's not do that, all right? They know what I'm talking about. Like, 
I don't know what's going on in your mind, but it, let me tell you what it feels like. It feels like you are on a hug restriction until <laughs> you work that out. You need to work that out, okay? I'm not, I'm not accusing you. Like, I, you know, I have the same struggles, and when I'm in that mode, I don't hug. I don't kiss. I'm not doing something to benefit me. I'm doing it to benefit them. When it starts to benefit me, be careful. Watch out. Whew. Warning, warning. So, um, uh, just have a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> Kids need to talk about sex. You, you may think, well, I'm no expert. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything. I'm scared of what they're going to ask me. It's like, you know, if you don't know the, the answer, just say, hey, I don't know the answer to that. I'll find it out. I'll find out. I mean, you can just Google it. You can figure it out, you know? It's not that hard. I'll take a note and I'll find it out. I'll find out the answer to that question. But they just need to talk to you. And my, um, my, my youngest son, Jason, who was up last night um, leading in prayer, um, he struggled with pornography for about a year. I think he was 16. Just really got just totally... Um, in prison to it and he came out one day and he's like sits down on the couch and he's like dad I got a struggle I'm like what's your struggle and he's like I'm really really stuck in pornography and I've been stuck in it for about three months I'm like all right you know I'm like oh I didn't like oh my god his son you're a Christian you know it's like you know I'm just like all right well so so what do you think the real problem is I, I don't I don't know dad you know I just so him and I worked together for about <clears throat> two months ourselves and did some stuff. He, I said, what, what kind of, you know, I, I, you, you can't fix someone from the outside. And you can't fix someone who doesn't have a problem. And, you know, if your kid doesn't want to be a virgin, you can't make them want to be a virgin. And if they don't want to be a virgin, you know, guess what? You know, it doesn't matter what kind of rules you give them. They're going to find, out, they're going to find some way to screw somebody if, they, if that's what they want to do. Unless you put a chastity belt on them and lock them up in the room. So, so we got to try to get to their heart early on. That's the goal, to get to the heart early on. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I think that, that, I think that we're trying to do with Moral Revolution and, and my book uh, began is it's really hard to create a positive with using primarily a negative. In other words, it's really difficult to say, you need to be sexually pure because these are all the terrible things that are going to happen to you. And it's like, it's vision that gives pain a purpose. Without a vision, people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. I think you keep rules when you have a vision. But when you don't have a vision, you, on, you wander aimlessly. What does that mean? It means you try to, life becomes staying out of pain or finding pleasure. So we call it vision-based discipline. Like once people have a vision, then they will restrain their options to capture a vision. So somehow we have to, we have to impregnate our people, our young people, our single people, it doesn't have to just be young, our single people with, this is the reason why you need to keep your virginity until you're married. Because you want to give your, your, your spouse, you want to give your lover something that you had to fight to keep because the value of your virginity is in the battle. Like the battle's good, it's not bad, it's good. And that battle says, when you lay with your lover, you're gonna be like, I fought for this and I kept this trophy for you. I paid a high price to give this to you. And somehow we have to create, we have to create a culture where, of reward. Like this is a culture of reward. It, are, are you following me? Like God actually planted two trees in the garden, a good tree and a bad tree. God planted it. It doesn't occur to us that, that God creates opportunities he doesn't want us to take. Let me say it again. God creates opportunities he doesn't want us to take. God's, Jesus is the one who said, get swords. And they said, oh, we've got two of them. Sell your coats and get swords. They get two swords. Peter uses one. Pete, Jesus is all, what are you doing? I mean, three hours before, he said, get swords. Then he uses it, and, God, and Jesus is mad at him. It's like, it, it's the nature of God to create opportunities he doesn't want us to take. In other words, he teaches us how to make choices, because the only way you can get a reward for doing something right is to have the opportunity to do it wrong. In religion, we cut down the second tree and we would never give people swords that we didn't want them to use. We would never, we'd never make wine for people who are already drunk. 
Those are all, we would, in other words, our idea is take away choices and create righteousness. That's not God's idea. God's idea is give people heart to do the right thing. Let them have a choice. And when they make the right choice, remind them of how amazing they are. So we create a culture of reward. Are you with me? And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't teach our young people, hey, you know, you could get, you can get uh, pregnant out of wedlock and you, you know, this is going to be tough to raise a child out of wedlock. You can get STD. I mean, you know, I, I think it's fine to tell them that. But that can't be the primary motivator for young people. That is not, listen, that wouldn't have motivated me when I was a kid. You could get, I, you know what a kid thinks? I'm never going to die. I'm never going to get hurt. And that's always going to happen to someone else. When you're 15, 16, 17, you think you're immortal. So when you, you, know, you hear all these terrible stories, we get older, we're like, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. A young person doesn't think that at all. They're like, that's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to get in a car accident going 110 miles an hour. I'm never going to get hurt. Nothing's going to happen to me. And they don't know any people who have died. They're all, they're all young. You know, by the time we get 40, you know, we've got... We've got 20% of our friends have died in an accident or died some disease, and it just occurs to us that we're not immortal. But that doesn't motivate kids. They don't think it's going to happen to them. Unless one of their friends gets a disease. Then, they, then they're concerned about it. But otherwise, like, they don't know anybody who has that disease. They don't know anybody that has that. So it's, and if, if someone does have that, they don't walk around going, have STDs. You know? So, so they don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's very difficult to create a revolution with no's. No. God's the cosmic no. So we have to figure out how to create a positive culture that has affection related to it, where we're actually meeting the core need that these kids are, are, are trying to find in other people. Does it make sense? Okay, we have exactly seven minutes, and I have to be on time to the meeting. So does anyone have a question and you're just going to have to boil it down to like one line. And stand up and just share it quickly, please. Okay. I have a 16 year old daughter. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she's scared, but she's kind of like opposed to it. Yeah. But she said she doesn't want to be judged by her. So what do I do? Give her my book. She got it last night. Has she read it? No. It'll help. I'll tell you why the book helps, honestly. Because the book says, hey, you know why you have this sex drive? Hey, this is totally normal. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not weird. You're just not, and, it, and it creates purpose for why you have it years before you, you want sex and covenant. And, and, I, and, um, and the book talks about, um, you, have you read it yourself? I just got it last night. Okay, well, it, it might be good because she may not read it. So it would be really good for you to read that. Uh, and, and I think it'll give you some tools. It's not, it's not the answer to everything. I'm not trying to say it is. But it'll give you, like that book was written out of my interaction with those probation kids. So it was not written, for, it was not written out of my interaction with church kids. So I think that um, you can read that book and you get some principles and just begin to uh, pour those principles into, into her and see if that helps. But let me say this. Whatever you do, stay close to her. Whatever you do, stay close to her. Because if you break your relationship with her, then she's lost relationship with light. So work really hard, like, okay, we don't agree about this. Um, you know, talk through. Uh, you, you'll, uh, you need, Danny's going to come and speak today. He'll have some really great answers. He's got two teenage boys that are kind of in that mode. Uh, they're, they're older teenagers. They're out of the house. But, you know, he's, he's dealing with that, that kind of stuff right now with, with his boys. So I think, it's, um, I think it's important for you just to listen to him. But I would read the book yourself, and I think it'll, it'll help you. It'll create mindsets, at least, for you. Yes? Um, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That oral sex is not sex. Yeah, well, the question isn't just have they lost their virginity. The question is, um, who are you, and therefore, how are you going to behave? So, the, you know, I, I don't, one of the things the book does is it says, I, I learn to live from virtues and values. So, I decide who I'm going to be, then I decide how I'm going to behave. So, 
if I, I let my stances and let instead of my circumstances dictate who I am, and, and I think that, that there's a whole chapter on that in the book, if I decide who I'm going to be, then I decide how I'm going to behave. So I'm not dealing with oral sex as like, is that sex or not sex? Am I still a virgin? I'm not a virgin. The question is, is that how, is that how a noble person behaves? Like, do you, you actually want to experience sexual relationship with someone that you're not going to marry because you understand what that's going to do when you get married to a certain person. Like, you're going to, it's, it's nothing's going to be new. You're, you're a used car. You know, what, why, why do you want to do that? So I think that the, the answer to those questions are more about identity. They're more about, like, this is who I am, so this is how I behave. And, I, and I'm a princess, so I don't behave like that. Hand out condoms and and and. Are you talking about like your own kids kind of thing, or I guess it could be anyone, couldn't it? Anybody that you have authority over. Yeah. You know, that, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. You know, you have somebody that says, "Hey, I'm going to have sex," and you know, it's your kid even. They say, "Hey, I'm going to have sex. I've had sex with five guys, and I'm gonna I I, I plan on having sex and." You know, the ne- your next thought as a parent is all the negative stuff. Like, I don't want them to get pregnant. I don't want them to end up with abortion. I don't want them to end up with some disease. I don't seem to be able to have any influence over my, my you know, daughter's thoughts, my, my son's thoughts. So what do I do? And I, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. I think that I think it needs to be answered on an individual basis. But I, I can tell you that I, I've never been in that situation. All my kids married as virgins. But I can tell you that um, if I was in that situation, it'd be really tough to, and I, and, I, and I felt like I had no influence over their decision. The struggle is, is that we're not, we don't want to agree with it. Like, we're, you know, we don't want them to hand out condoms in, in public school because we're like, it feels like a license to kill. So on the other hand, it's like, we don't want our kids to end up pregnant or with some kind of disease, you know? So I, I don't... I don't know the answer to that question because I think it's, I don't think I can answer that question in a book or in a general statement. I think you have to work through it with your kids and with the people that you care about. I think, um, you know, probably two thirds of the girls that I worked with on uh, probation, they were um, on birth control pills. I never ever preached against it because um, I knew where they were coming from. And I'm like, one thing we don't need is for you to you know, to you reproduce unhealthy kids and, and raise them like you were raised. So that's really controversial. I, I really, I'm not, I'm not trying to be politically correct. I don't really know the answer. I think it's more individual. Maybe Heath, you, you have an opinion about that? I forgot you were in the front row. Huh? I actually agree with what you said. Okay. Yes, Heath Wise is a sex therapist, and she's part of our Moral Revolution team. So she actually knows what she's talking about. If it was my daughter, I would, it's, let me do it this way. If, if I had a child who was in experimenting in a lesbian or a homosexual relationship, I w- they would know where I stood on that. I would have that conversation with them. Yeah. But I'm going to welcome that I'm going to welcome their friends that are in that lifestyle because I want to have relationship with them. Yeah. It's the relationship that's the most important thing. Yeah. I'm not saying and there I have parents that will say you're saying that's okay. But that's not so. I'm saying I love those kids. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same to me. It's the same principle, which is I'm not okay with this, but I love you, yeah. and I want the best for you. And so let's talk about that. You know, I'm struggling with that. And when we're real, our kids really honor that. Yeah. They know I'm struggling with that, but I love you, and that's the main issue. Yeah. 
We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.